0: If you have a Bible with you, turn to Colossians chapter 1, that chapter we just read a little bit from already. Colossians chapter 1. In fact, we'll read at least one verse of what we already read as we continue from that to more of this book that we're trying to work our way through. So, Colossians chapter 1, we'll start in the middle of a sentence, verse 22. Start in the middle of a sentence so we can get a kind of running start on where paul makes a turn so watch for a turn here you see this often in paul he makes a turn and then he heads in that direction for a while and then you see something that indicates a turn and then he heads upon that turn in a different direction for a while here i'll show you what i mean verse 22 he says he has now reconciled in his body a flesh by his death In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. That last bit is the turn. Now Paul will be a little autobiographical about Paul. Chapter 2, verse 1, remember the chapter headings and verse markings were added later. They're not in Paul's mind probably as he begins this new section, new in our Bibles anyway. Chapter 2, verse 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. I think we could call this section of the book of Colossians the guts and the glory of the ministry. You see guts, you see glory. Let's start with what we might call the guts, or what we could call the pains of Paul's ministry, the pains. There are three references to suffering in these verses. Verse 24, he begins that part of this, really this section beginning with this phrase, I rejoice in my sufferings. And then in verse 29, he says, I toil, struggling struggling with all his energy chapter 2 verse 1 I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, now these are quick references to Paul's struggling toiling and suffering but you can find elsewhere some long descriptions of Paul's suffering probably the best is 2nd Corinthians 11, will you turn there or at least listen to it, 2nd Corinthians 11 Paul kind of gives a a bio of suffering. In verse 24, as he begins to defend himself against other so-called apostles, and he's really, to be honest, quite embarrassed that he has to do this. He's reluctant to, to sort of pull out his resume of suffering and say, see, here's why you should listen to me. I've been suffering so much. He's reluctant to do it, but he does it. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews... 40 lashes less one, 39 whippings. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Could you imagine another category of suffering? Hardship, pain, disappointment? But he doesn't stop. In fact, he puts this, I think at the end, as something of the culmination. Of that bio of suffering. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He's worried about the church. Oh, not in an unbiblical worry kind of way. He said, Philippians 4, don't be anxious about anything. Here he says he's anxious. Not the same kind of anxiety. Here he's talking about a kind of care for the church's welfare. In intimate shepherding of the church, and really the church is, plural, such that when someone crashes, he's broken. When there's weakness, he feels it. He feels it in his soul, feels it in his bones. You, You see Paul's suffering here. It's amazing. It's amazing what he went through. No surprise that just a chapter later, he told the Corinthians that he will gladly spend... And be spent for their souls. What a great phrase. Spend and be spent for their souls. No surprise that he tells Timothy in his last letter to Timothy. Last chapter of his last letter to Timothy. To take pains with the things that he's been writing to him. To be absorbed in those things. So great suffering. Just hints of it in Colossians fuller descriptions elsewhere, but why? Why such suffering? Why would Paul do this? I mean, doesn't Paul strike you as a little bit radical? Well, not a little bit, right? Quite radical. Maybe a little absurd. Maybe a little loose in the head. Why would he suffer like this? Well, you actually have five reasons back in Colossians 1. The first is because of compulsion. He feels compulsion because of a calling that's put upon him. Verse 23 and verse 25 both refer to Paul's calling. Now, you might remember that calling. In Acts chapter 9, he was called. He was both saved and called at the exact same moment. And as he was called, remember, he was struck blind temporarily and then sent into a city. And as he's sent into the city, God shows up, Jesus shows up and talks to Ananias, a prophet, and tells Ananias that he has to watch for Paul. He's going to have to teach Paul some things. And then he tells us this, us through the book of Acts anyway. He tells Ananias, he's a chosen instrument of mine. He'll carry my name before the Gentiles, and I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer. Well, Paul saw his ministry as, here in Colossians 1, a stewardship. A steward is one who's put in charge of a master's thing or a master's responsibility, a master's job. The mission is God's mission. But Paul has been given a unique stewardship. Every Christian is a steward. Every Christian has been given the gospel put in charge of disseminating it and reconciling it and living it out in front of the world. But apostles are unique stewardships, right? They're, they're kind of capital S stewards of the gospel and playing a special role in the building of the kingdom. Paul sees this thing landing on him, and he sees that it can't end with him. He's been entrusted with it. It's compulsion. But also, he suffers because he's empowered. Look at verse 29. Mysterious kind of wording here. I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. It's not that Paul doesn't toil or that it doesn't feel like toil because there's so much of Christ's power working in him. It's somehow mysterious. Oh, believe me, Paul feels the toil. Paul feels as though this is struggle. He has to battle his will to to get up and to do it. You know, to preach again after being stoned. to, To preach again after being whipped or imprisoned. To go out on the boat again after being shipwrecked a second time. But when that goes well, and by well I mean... Either there's fruit, people are converted, the gospel is spreading, or not. But Paul remains faithful to his call and faithful to what he's been entrusted. Whenever it happens either of those ways, Paul's going to say, it's not me, but Christ working in me. Yes, it was a mental battle, a battle of the will to get up and preach again, knowing what might come. But having done that, I say the power is not my own, it's Christ's. Given to me. It's a mysterious mix of human struggle and divine energy that leads Paul to embrace the kind of suffering he does. Also, because there's joy in the midst of it all. There's joy. He says right at the beginning, verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings. Would you dare pray that God would grant you the grace? To at some point in your life say, I rejoice in my sufferings and mean it. Paul rejoiced in the sufferings. The sufferings weren't really in competition with his ultimate goals and aims. I mean, Paul's a frustrating guy to try to oppose. You see, in Philippians, he's in prison, and there's all this reference to joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Probably more than any other of Paul's letters, he refers to joy in Philippians. Probably in his last imprisonment. He probably never gets out. He's probably executed not many months after he writes the book of Philippians. And yet, all this joy... You can't frustrate, ultimately frustrate a guy like Paul. You say to him, Paul, we're going to kill you. And he says, I get to go to heaven? Really? I get to see my Savior face to face for me to live as Christ? So dying is gain. Okay, we won't kill you. We're not going to kill you. Oh, really, I get to stay here and keep proclaiming the ministry of this word? I keep getting to talk about the glory of Christ and his kingdom, his gospel? Oh, thanks. <laughs> and they say, mm. all right, we're going to keep you in prison. Oh, I've been really getting some progress talking to these prison guards. That sounds good. I've been writing some letters. I think they might last in history. You just can't frustrate a guy like Paul because his joy is so unshakably rooted in Christ. Christ is unchanging. The mission is unchanging. And sometimes suffering actually puts wheels to the gospel spreading. Sometimes suffering, Paul says in Philippians 1, actually makes other Christians more bold because they see this thing's worth living for. This thing's even worth dying for. Paul also suffers because there's need. You see this phrase, verse 24? He's filling up, Paul's filling up, what's lacking in Christ's sufferings. What does that mean? I guess maybe we should start out by saying, what doesn't it mean? What can't it mean? That's a good way to approach other theological dilemmas, interpretive dilemmas. To start out by saying, okay, based on what I know about Scripture already, what can't this mean? Theology is something like putting together a puzzle. In little verses here, well, this one is a puzzle piece. These few over here make up a pretty big puzzle piece, and some of them are very clear. You know, this puzzle piece has an eye on it. You can see it, so you know it goes right there. Put it down and work around it. This one is a corner. I know it's that corner. You put it down and you work around it. Some verses are that clear. Other ones like this are like the the trees in a puzzle. Just a bunch of green. You go, what is this? Where does this go? How does this fit? The goal is that we get it to fit with our theology without cutting something off, without trying to hammer it into place so we get it to fit. Or even worse, perhaps your personal preference of how to do theology It's just pieces on the table, and you go, there, done. Scatter them around, I don't care, I don't know, it's too tough, it's too mysterious. I don't know how they fit together. That's someone else's job to think through that. Well, Paul doesn't think so, and he gives us this little puzzle piece that, again, isn't a very clear one. It's not a corner, it's not an eye. He says, He's filling up what's lacking in Christ's sufferings. Now, what that can't mean is that there's something insufficient or inadequate about Christ's sufferings. That Jesus is a 99% Savior, but Paul is somehow a 1% of the equation Savior. No, Paul would never think something so blasphemous. We get a hint of what it could mean if we look over at Philippians 2. Just two pages in your Bible, probably. That's what it is in mine. One book back, Philippians 2, and in verse 30, we have the exact same phrase, filling up what's lacking. In this section of Philippians 2, Paul's commending Epaphroditus to the Philippian church. Now, remember, Epaphroditus is mentioned in Philippians 2. Epaphras is mentioned in Colossians, and we said many weeks ago, they're probably the same guy. Here's what Paul says about Epaphroditus to the Philippian church, Philippians 2.30. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Complete what was lacking, just like Colossians 1.24, filling up what is lacking. So what was lacking... In the Philippians' gift to Paul, that Epaphroditus filled up, topped off. Well, the Philippian church, no doubt, took up an offering. That's clear from the context. That's the gift they mentioned. That's the need they're trying to meet. They're trying to get money and resources to Paul. They probably take up an offering. That's done. The work's been done in a sense, but it's got to get there. The gift from the Philippian church has to get to Paul. And Epaphroditus is the messenger. He's filling up what's lacking in their gift. There's really nothing lacking in their gift. It's everything Paul needs. But Epaphroditus fills up, tops off what's missing. It's got to get there. Okay, that means in, a Col- in Colossians 1.24 that the complete finished Redemptive work of Christ has to get to those who don't have it. Christ's work is finished, it's complete. But Paul is like Epaphroditus. The work has to get to them. And it gets to them through a message. It gets to them through a messenger. Paul is that messenger. He's filling up what's lacking in Christ's sufferings. There is nothing savingly lacking in Christ's sufferings. But the good news of that gospel has to get to the people in Colossae and around Colossae. And Paul has been something of the messenger because he gave it to Epaphras who then took it to the Colossian church and there in that area, cities around it, The gospel spread. That's what it means, filling up what's lacking in Christ's sufferings. It tells us that Paul's motivated, even suffering, because there's great need. Even though Christ died, it still has to get there. The gift has to get there through words. One more reason why we see Paul suffering in this great passage is, I think, because of the glory of the truth. There's glory in the truth that he describes. That's kind of wrapping up this first section in your notes, the pains of Paul's ministry, which leads us to the second one, the aims of Paul's ministry. The aims of Paul's ministry. Really, there are two sections. Look down in your Bibles. I don't have anything more than what the Bible has for you. That's all I have today. Notice this chunk. Verse 25 to 28. Where there Paul gives his ministry aims for the church in general. okay. Well, What he wants. What, what he's aiming for. And you can see behind me just this bullet point list of little phrases. He wants to make the word of God fully known. He wants to make known a mystery. He'll come back to that. A mystery, verse 27, with all its great riches of glory. That's what he wants to make known. The mystery, verse 27, which is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We'll come back to that phrase in a minute. He wants, he says in verse 28, simply to proclaim him. And then he says he wants to warn and teach everyone. And then this small aim, to present everyone mature in Christ. Just to get everyone mature, everyone mature adulthood in their relationship with christ those are sort of aims for the church in general and then he gets specific the next chunk here chapter 2 verses 2 to 5 really the same stuff we only know it's different in that verse 1 says i want you to know how great a struggle i have for you the colossians and those at laodicea and then he goes on and like i said basically repeats himself with other aims let's look at them though He has the aim that their hearts may be encouraged, verse 2, that they would be knit together in love, that they would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. What lofty descriptions here. That they would reach the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, who's the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. That all this would help that, They wouldn't be deluded. False teaching wouldn't delude them, verse 4. That's really, by the way, another motivation for Paul's suffering is the sheer danger of false teaching. And then quickly, verse 5, he wraps it up by just saying, I'm eager to come and see you, to see you in good order and to see you firm in the faith. Now, a few things for us to notice about these verses. Notice once again that there's a kind of anecdote to the, to the specific kind of false teaching Paul's giving here. He remember from the, the previous talks of Colossians chapter 1 and introducing Colossians that there were these false teachers. In fact, we saw just a hint of that in verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. These false teachers, their plausible arguments, were saying something like, we have a secret for Christians. What you have is good, but we're going to tell you the secret of spirituality. So they spoke of truths that were hidden, and hidden only to some, sort of the elite of the elect would get these truths and and in these truths there would be a glory which was here before unknown, unexperienced and only for some. Well, do you see Paul's language of mystery in what we've read already so far? Verse 26, 27 and then chapter 2, verse 2 he's talking about mystery and he keeps saying the mystery is what? Christ. I know he says a little bit more than that, but basically all he says is that the mystery is Christ. In other words, the mystery, which, yes, in a sense was hidden in times past. It wasn't exactly clear how the Messiah would come or that his name would be Jesus or or how the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 would also be the Psalm 2, David-like king of righteousness. We know it was hidden in a sense, but now it's not hidden. It's no longer a secret. In fact, every Christian is supposed to hear what they already have in Christ. There's a glory, not that the mystery is hidden and exclusive, but that the glory now is Christ, and it's inclusive. Every Christian gets this. Notice also that this centers on, seems to center on that phrase in verse 27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I would argue that's kind of the the high point of what Paul's wanting to communicate to them. Christ in you, the hope of glory. What does he mean? I think he means the highest point of the gospel is not something you don't have. But also, the highest point of the gospel is not just forgiveness. The highest point of the gospel is communion with you. God communing with you. You communing with him. Christ in you. That's the hope of glory. The goal of God's grace, then, is not just that we escape hell. So that Paul really means here, The hope of glory is that regardless of whatever heaven's like, however chubby and small the baby angels are, or obnoxious the the harps get eventually, at least it won't be hell. At least it won't be flaming fire. No, he's not saying that. He's saying the hope of glory is not just forgiveness, not just escaping hell, but communion with God The way we were made to commune with him. And that will ultimately be in the new heaven and the new earth. Whatever was lost in the garden with Adam and Eve when sin entered this world will be restored in then some, in the new heaven and the new earth. But we have a taste of it now. We have a taste of it now. We commune with him now. Not in the fullest way. Not like we will one day, but we do now. We truly have this now. Christ is in us. Just to be theologically specific, though, it's not the second person of the Trinity that is residing within our hearts. True or false, Jesus still has a body. True. He has forever taken on a body. It's a glorified body, but he didn't, when he went up to heaven, turn back into some non-embodied spirit being. He still has a body. He doesn't fit in our hearts. Okay? When it says Christ in you, it, it means, technically, theologically, tec- technically, it means Christ's spirit within you. Now, some people really want to get specific. They say, No, it says Christ in you. Jesus is in us. Well, what's the Holy Spirit doing? I think he's doing something. And we see, again, comparing scripture with scripture, putting this puzzle piece down, putting that one down, we see Christ is up in heaven. He's at the right hand of the throne of God. Colossians 3.1 already told us that. We read it earlier in our service. The Holy Spirit is the God person who is indwelling our hearts as believers, but that's, in a sense, Christ's spirit. It's his spirit, according to John 14 and John 16 He's the one that gives the spirit. So in a sense, we can say Christ is in us. The point, though, more importantly, is that God communes with us. Now, notice more simply how word-based this all is. By this, I mean these two sections we saw of Paul's aims in his ministry, that section of a few verses in chapter 1, that section of a few verses in chapter 2. It's remarkable how word-based it is. I mean, after all, Paul begins with this small aim, to make the word fully known. That's it? You mean fully disclose what's in God's word and what you know of it, Paul? Yeah. On the one hand, this is wonderfully simplistic. It's just the word that he wants to make known. It's not the word plus something. Just the word. He has already revealed it, unlike these false teachers were teaching in Colossae. It's wonderfully simplistic that it's just the word, and yet it's horribly wonderfully deep that he would say, I want to fully disclose the word to you. I want to teach all of the word to you. It's amazing how rich his description is here, that they would, chapter 2, verse 2, get the riches a full understanding. He wants them to grow in their encouragement and grow in their love and grow in, in assurance and grow in understanding, grow in communion with Christ, no doubt, though it's not mentioned, grow in their boldness of proclamation of the gospel. But Paul is not shy to tie all of that to knowledge, to understanding, to doctrine, to teaching. It's remarkable how word-based it all is. Which leads us to the third thing in your outline. I want to give a defense of strengthening and growth. Kind of a parenthesis based on what we've seen so far. There's an ongoing debate in the church about the balance between evangelism and discipleship. So some say, you know, we've got to be an evangelistic church. That's what describes us. And maybe others would say, do you go to a discipleship church? I don't know what that means. I've never seen that as a, a slogan of a church. You know, Desert Spring Church, a discipleship a discipleship church. I haven't seen that. Some people describe things, though, that way. There's polarity, right? There are, there are pockets or even camps sometimes for some it's more about love versus discipleship or or for some might be it's um it's passion versus doctrine or devotion versus doctrine Wh- whatever you want to put in the other side of the the balance here a lot of times doctrine is the bad guy well i want to take some time this morning to defend doctrine seems like the pendulum is always swinging so we're doing this one too much and so we begin to neglect this one and then do the other side more paul won't let us pit one good thing against another though So i want to give you a defense of strengthening and growth in part by looking at the book of acts you don't have to turn there but let me give you a survey of some things i think are interesting in paul's missionary journeys now Paul's missionary journeys are chapters 13 to 21 in acts chapter 13 the middle of it he's sent out and he's a missionary middle of chapter 21 he's imprisoned and that's where he stays until the end of the book he has for you know the next several chapters of the book several speeches he gives to you know Felix and Festus and these different rulers in in the area he's in prison that whole time though so really we have about eight chapters of what we call Paul's missionary journeys. And of course, there are all kinds of references in those chapters to Paul preaching the gospel to unbelievers, making converts, right? Preaching the gospel and seeing people move from darkness to light as they embrace that gospel and believe the good news of Christ. Now, I'm not going to show you those references. I suspect you already know that they're there. I suspect just by me saying, even if you've never read Acts 13 to 21, by me saying Paul's missionary journeys, you think of Paul preaching the gospel and preaching the gospel to unbelievers. Now, what you're probably less aware of, and what I do want to show you, is that there are a lot of references in those chapters, 13 to 20, of Paul's efforts to strengthen existing churches, to teach and to disciple those who are already Christians. He cares about this, and it's part of being a missionary. Let me show you. It's worth taking time to see almost every example. So chapter 14, verse 21, When they preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, He's going back through where they've already been. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they appointed elders in every church. Elders are important. Why? Well, leadership, yes, that's part of it. But instruction is another part of it. They need strengthening when the apostles are gone, when the apostles are even dead. Later on in that chapter, verse 27, it says, When they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Here, not a teaching passage, but a kind of teaching passage, reviewing what God is doing with the disciples. It's disciple time. Chapter 15. Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. Verse 35, but Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch. That's where they were sent out. Teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. There's this frequent doubling back effort in Acts. They go and make disciples and then they circle back around, and they strengthen the disciples. Chapter 16, verse 5, the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Now, I think the way some people talk, you'd think that verse says, the churches were strengthened in the faith, and yet nevertheless they increased. Nevertheless, people got saved. Even though they were focused on discipleship, somehow people got saved. Listen to chapter 18, verse 11. He stayed a year and six months, a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next to the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples, a doubling back effort. Chapter 19. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, those who aren't yet Christians rejected the gospel even spoke evil of the way before the congregation. Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. He continued for two years there, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Chapter 20. Verse 1, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he'd gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Well, I have several other references. Let me just wrap it up with one more. There are about four others in chapter 20, but we'll just do one more. Verse 31. This is what he said to the Ephesian elders as he was leaving. Therefore, be alert. Be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. The point simply is, Paul has a heartbeat for strengthening the church, for discipling Christians. He has a heartbeat that really fits with the Great Commission, no surprise. The Great Commission isn't just go and tell and walk away. It's go and tell, make disciples, baptize, and teach them to observe whatever Jesus commanded. That's what Paul's been praying in his great prayers, like that one in Colossians chapter 1. He's been praying for strength. He's been praying for knowledge. He's been praying for understanding. He's been praying for illumination. Every letter that Paul writes, 13 of them, are really strengthening letters, right? He's writing, teaching. They're really instructional letters. He's not shy or apologetic about the role of knowledge or the role of understanding towards unity in the church or towards communion with God or towards personal holiness. These things, personal holiness, communion with God, and unity in the body are not abstractly detached from truth, from doctrine, from teaching. If you remember a few weeks back, from indicatives. Paul's not shy or apologetic like we tend to be today. I confess I tend to be today. I tend to acknowledge the fact that it's going to be thick and we're not used to that if it's going to be thick and, and that happens often because God's word I think is thick it's not an either or it's a both and it's doctrine and witness it's instruction and love for each other it's knowledge and passionate holiness between you and God it's discernment and communion with him no church or individual gets that balance just right in fact it's not even right to call it a balance like they're separate things you just have to make sure that they're equal in weight that's not how Paul would think of this he would think of it more as a cycle or mashed potatoes or something he he put them all together Were you kidding what what is doctrinal that isn't Doxological, which what isn't worship? What is worshipful that doesn't get Christ right? And part of why this is so important is the reality in danger of falsehood. The strengthening efforts are not only right, and they're not only needed, they have the long view in mind. D.A. Carson likes to say, When one generation believes and cherishes the gospel, and the second generation merely assumes the gospel, the third generation will usually outright deny the gospel. Desert Springs Church is just a couple generations away from being useless. Desert Springs Church is just a couple generations away from Jesus taking the lampstand right from the middle of us. Desert Springs Church is just a couple generations away from us getting the gospel wrong and hence the mission being worse than useless. It's that important. So let me wrap this up by giving you, fourthly, some implications for our ministry. Some implications for DSC. We indeed do need to grow in our evangelistic fervor and our, our mission effectiveness as a church. It's true that we here at Desert Springs probably do instruction and discipleship, leadership training, and these days even community, better than we do mission at least local mission. At least our mission. At least the everyday mission. But the fix is not a turning away from other good things. You see, we can never leave the one to cling to the other. It's a false dichotomy. We say that we're about both the broader And the deeper Spreading God's glory Broader and deeper That's how we describe what we're about And what we're to do That means there are places Where God's glory is not known Yes in North Africa Yes in in Guatemala Yes in our own backyards The gospel has to go It has to get there We have to fill up What is lacking in Christ's sufferings Just like it was for Paul It has to go broader. One day it will cover the earth like waters cover the sea. And it's going to get there in part through us. But it's got to go deeper. It can't be earth wide and an inch deep. We need a growingly deeper perspective of who God is and what he's like, we, we need to go deep with his majesty, with his sovereignty. We need to get him in order to awe him. Oh, we won't perfectly get him, but we dig deeper in order to further stand in awe. We witness because there are some who aren't yet worshipers. And we teach and we pray and we shepherd because none of us yet worship like we do. Because the worship of God can't just be Sunday mornings for an hour and a half. Because there are times in our week where we look at a wonderful, glorious sunset, and it's just a nice sunset. It doesn't declare glory to us. Because we often eat of tasty foods to the glory of the cook, to the glory of the food, not to the glory of the preeminent creator, maker, sustainer, provider, Christ. We often sing on a Sunday morning of deep truth put poetically describing the majesty and glory of God and the wonder of his gospel and the freeness of the forgiveness of sins that we have and our hearts leap an inch or a millimeter toward heaven. Now I'm just describing me. I don't know about the rest of you. So as a church, we need to grow, yes, in our personal witness and, yes, grow in a pervasive sense of our own missionary calling to our own spheres of influence. Yes, we want to grow in seeing more people converted, more baptisms that aren't just, I didn't think I was lost all these years, but, but, but now I, I think I was probably saved when I was 20, baptized at 17, saved at 20, I should get baptized again. I, I'm glad you're getting baptized if that's you. That's my story, too. But I'd like to hear more about real, true gutter redemptions. May it be that we never at DSC, by God's grace, never say this ridiculous thing. Oh, that we've learned enough now. We don't need to learn any more until we do More of and do better of what we already know. That's just dumb. No one says, I don't want that meal, I already had that meal. You need food today. You need today's food, even if you had that meal before. And that's what it works. That's how it works with God's food the food of the Word. You need daily food, even if you ate that portion of it before. You need it again because if you're like me, you forget. You need it again because even if you didn't forget, it loses its saltiness. Or even if it didn't lose its saltiness, even if you didn't forget. Only God knows how sometimes he puts together a plate with this combination of with this kind of teaching, with this side dish here and this here, and you you put these verses together and something clicks. I can't tell you how many times I've taught something, you know, one of my hobby horses. I've taught it a dozen times since I've been here. Or, Or one passage. I've taught it several times. We've gone there often. And someone who's been here since I've been here says seven years later, oh man, no way, I get it. Oh, And I'm thinking, Am I a horrible communicator? Is that, what, what's going on here? And then I realize we're all sheep. And I'm one of them. Sheep are slow. We don't get it. Sometimes it takes God shuffling the puzzle pieces around and sometimes they all fall at once and you go, whoa, he's bigger than I thought. Who knows when God will do that? That's why we need more meals. That's why we keep eating even though you heard it before. Even though you know what it says. Who knows what God will do? The point of strengthening work is never a hindrance to our witnessing. Strengthening work is never in competition with love for others, especially love for the lost. In fact, it should be an impetus. I want to wrap this up with a quote, a longish quote that I referenced in a sermon back in 2005. In two thousand five we were trying to get our global missions efforts to the next level. And by God's grace we have um, we have seen more fruit than we knew to pray for back in two thousand five. Again, by, by God's grace and to his glory alone, no individual or group of people can take credit from that for that. But back in 2005, we were trying to rally the troops and paint the picture, cast the vision for where we could go and what we needed to do in our cause of putting people on the field and and caring about the mission spreading to those who aren't yet reached. Well, I bring it before you again as we're in need of a similar awakening in our church on a more local level. We say this to every membership class. You might not know this if you've been here for a while. The thing we're aching for the most is a leadership, the thing we're praying for and working towards probably the most, the, the biggest hole we see at Desert Springs Church is a need for every Christian here to be on mission, to be bold with their faith. So let me read this to you again, knowing that it's about global missions, but hearing this as an impetus and as a, uh, an instruction for how we get you and me to be more bold about our faith. It isn't by leaving doctrine. So here's what John Piper says. What then should a pastor do to promote a passion among his people to see God glorified? By the ingathering of his sheep from thousands of unreached people groups around the world? What does a pastor do? My answer? Above everything else, be the kind of person, and the kind of preacher, whose theme and passion is the majesty of God. No church will be able to rise to the magnificence of the missionary cause of Christ if they do not feel the magnificence of Christ himself. There will be no big world vision without a big God. There will be no passion to draw others near or far into the joy of our worship where there is no passionate joy in worship. The most important thing I think pastors can do, Piper says, is to arouse and sustain a passion for world evangelization week in, week out, to help their people see the crags and peaks and icy cliffs and snow-capped heights of God's majestic character. I mean that we should labor in our preaching to clear the mists and fog away from the sharp contours of the character of God. We should let him be seen in his majesty and sovereignty. How will our people ever come to feel in their bones the awful magnitude of what is at stake in the eternal destiny of the unevangelized if our homiletical maxim, our sermons, are to start with a joke and keep the people entertained with anecdotes all along the way? How will the people ever come to know and feel the crags and peaks and snow-capped heights of God's glory if our preaching and worship services are more like picnics in the valley than thunder on the ice ice face of Mount Everest? May that be so. May that be so until Jesus returns.